Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about St. Bridget, one of the two patron saints of Catholic Ireland and an iconic figure for queer Catholic women in Ireland. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We offer our respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. I don't have many content warnings for this episode. There's a brief mention of self-inflicted eye trauma in a kind of mythological context. Alrighty. Um, That's a new one. A brief mention of slavery, some non-explicit discussions of sex and abortion. It also includes mentions of religiously motivated self-harm, including eye trauma and burning. None of it's particularly detailed, but if you want to avoid any of that, you can move along now. I'm going to start by confessing to you, as with almost all medieval saints, that we don't really have any written primary sources about St. Bridget's life. Confession seems a good way to start a very Catholic episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I don't really know why I'm allowed to be here. I don't know anything about this. So I'm just like, haha, I know that thing. I feel like we need both flavors of people mm. here. Like, definitely it would be wrong if me and Alice just had an Irish Catholic episode together. Uh-huh, okay. Um, because there are listeners we have who don't know anything about Ireland or Catholics. Yeah. So I'm glad you're here to Thank tell me you. That. <laughs> I'm the listener insert. <laughs> yes. So the earliest written record of St. Bridget that we have is Cogitosa's Life of St. Bridget, which appears to have been written around the year 650, which is about 200 years after her birth and about 130 years after her death. Okay, so you got spoilers. She's going to live for 70 years. She is going to live for about <laughs> 70 years. <laughs> there are a couple of other similar texts generally dated to sometime in the 8th or 9th century, but these are the earliest mm. works that we have. Do these people appear to be building on earlier like lives or biographies that we no longer have, or do they appear to just be kind of making stuff up from 200 years later? Um, Cogitosis very much appears to be writing as like the first person to have done this. He's like, I've been inspired to set down the life of St. Bridget, a momentous task. Okay. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> After which he proceeds with like a long list of miracles that she's performed. Okay, right, right, right. So that's the kind of source we're dealing with. Not someone who's like, I've pulled together all the existing histories and I'm trying to write a history. No, somebody who's very much writing like a, a life of a saint, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And all three texts are quite similar in this regard. They're mm. mostly like little paragraphs about every miracle that's been attributed to her through which we can maybe glean some facts about her real life. Mm. Okay. I'm also going to warn you now that there are some scholars who believe that St. Bridget as a human being did not actually exist at all. <laughs> I disagree with them, but I thought I'd better bring this okay. up i was going to ask you that then i was like is it rude to immediately start the episode by being like so is this all fake or what <laughs> <laughs> um prior to christian island there is an irish goddess who is also called bridget and over time a lot of mythology about the goddess bridget gets kind of folded into the stories about saint bridget to the point where some scholars are like, we don't think St. Bridget actually existed. We okay. think that she's kind of a fiction that's used to like combine the two religious traditions in order to make Christianity more palatable to sure. the Irish people. Mm -hmm. In general, I think it's probably more likely to say that St. Bridget did exist. Okay. And that over time they've been kind of connected to each other. I did read a statistical analysis of her miracles. Okay. Which was a very funny document to read. Somebody just like collected all the miracles yep. that like were recorded of her doing and statistically analyzed them based on theme and concluded that they had no particular leaning towards 
the domains of the goddess Bridget mm-hmm. um, compared to what other saints were doing. There's no indication in the very early texts that she has any association with the goddess. Oh, okay. okay. By the 1300s, Gerald of Wales visited the abbey that St. Bridget founded in the 1300s and described a flame there, an eternal flame that's kept constantly alight in honour of St. Bridget, which is drawing on a earlier tradition surrounding the goddess Bridget, who is associated with like light and hearth fire. Isn't an eternal flame in a church like quite common though? Yeah, specifically, I'll tell you specifically about the ritual involved with this one. So it's kept constantly alight. There were 19 nuns assigned to tend the fire, one for each night. And on the 19th night, the final nun would like verbally pass the responsibility of keeping the fire on the 20th night to Bridget herself. Mm -hmm. And the 20th night, the flame is just left untended Mm -hmm. and Bridget magically keeps it alight. Oh, yeah. Good on her. And then they start again. Um, so Bridget's just like on the roster with like... Just like on the roster with, with the other nuns, yeah. So yes, there are eternal flames in other churches, but this has a unique ritual associated with it. Oh, okay. okay. And that's to do with the goddess, not with the saint? Yeah, so okay. the eternal flame being tended by this group of virgins is oh, okay. associated with the goddess. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess um, that does sound a bit pagan. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you put it like that. So... Kind of the overall point, just to make sure I'm keeping up, is that there is an association between the saint, who you understand to have been a real Mm -hmm. human woman, and the goddess, but that it developed over time and was not present in the early sources. Therefore, it cannot explain her not being a real human woman. Yeah, that's sort of my contention here, is that it's like the goddess Bridget is not present in the Mm -hmm. early sources in any can't play the function that some scholars have argued that it played yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of the pre-Christian Bridget stuff is drawn in later on, cool. and even increasingly later than that, like beyond mm. the twelve hundreds, elements of the goddess Bridget continue being pulled in. Yeah, and um, now we're like the like you know more than half a millennia away from yeah. when this woman actually lived allegedly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we're we're so long away that if you look at like popular knowledge about St. Bridget now, they seem very closely intertwined. Yeah, yeah, cool. With all that in mind, I'm not going to pretend that I can somehow pull out the correct facts about St. Bridget's life. It's called her as fact diary. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, We're that's doing... always been a lie. Queer as <laughs> um, conjecture. Yeah, queer as conjecture. Queer as Catholic speculation. <laughs> But I will do my best to give you a brief rundown of, like, what we know about her life before we talk about her legacy as a sort of Irish Catholic figure. Okay. All right. The Irish Annals, which is a collection of various annals from From Ireland, Ireland. from Ireland, (laughs) which basically just, like, lists the births and deaths of important Mm -hmm. figures, contains an entry under the year 452, which reads, Here some say was the birth of St. Bridget. The following entry in 456 says, The birth of St. Bridget, as others say. So when would this annals have been written? I don't have an exact year for you, sorry. Um, but they're compiled similar era to like cogitosis oh, okay. kind of thing. Like a couple okay. a couple of hundred years later, they're being compiled with knowledge of religious figures from the past kind of thing. Okay. So those are some nice numbers. We don't really have much reason to believe they had any inside knowledge there. There's Yeah, there's general consistency that she was born around the middle of the 400s. Okay. Um, but that's all I can really say to you about that. Um, okay. I do feel, despite this uncertainty, much more grounded now that we're in the traditional this person was born yeah. section, because all of that stuff started happening about, like, eternal flames and things, and I was like, huh, what? <laughs> yeah. We're meant to start lit review, but that's the format. <laughs> yeah, I felt that I had to contend with did she really exist yeah. first before I launched into what she did. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense, and, like, it, you know, I got there, but I was kind of wondering 
if we were just going to continue on from there into yet more esoteric Catholic things. <laughs> and I was becoming a little alarmed. But no, no, no. no, no. Someone was born in some year. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm fine with that. Her early biographers differ a little bit on the matter of her birth and childhood. According to Cogitosis, she was born to wealthy parents. Other sources have her born to a wealthy druid father and his Christian slave. Mm-hmm. Okay. I understand that, like, born to wealthy parents is a very standard thing that they say about saints, that they don't know who they were born to, just to be like, you know, look, this person came from a good family, essentially. Yeah. By they, I mean, like, medieval Christians in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very much a thing that happened. Yeah. And there's also a lot of, like, later sources will kind of increasingly want to link her with old Irish families. Mm -hmm. um, Or, like, Druids or that kind of thing in the same way to, like, link her with older Irish traditions. Yeah, yeah. She was either fostered out in childhood to another powerful family, which was a normal thing to do if you were a wealthy family in Ireland. It serves a kind of similar function to a political marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or alternatively, if her mother was a slave, the two of them were sold together to another household. Okay. It's interesting that, like, you've got, in both stories, she's raised in a household that's not her birth household, but it's from, like, the two extremes of the, like, social spectrum. Like, it's either because this is something that, like, wealthy, high-up families do, or because she's a slave who's been sold. Yeah, I think you can kind of see, and that's what I mean when you read these texts, you can kind of glean some facts about her life. Hmm, yeah. Um... But what they actually are is hard to say. You're like, I can see she was born. I can see she was raised outside of her father's house. Mm-hmm. But that's all we know about that. Yeah. What was slavery like in this period? Like, are we looking at like chattel slavery? Or is this a kind of like indentured servitude thing for people who've wandered to poverty? Or like, um, know, what kind of social condition does that apply to her? It's usually here, it's like a consequence of war. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they'll be like prisoners of war or captives from mm-hmm. something like that. Her mother, as a slave, is supposed to have been Pictish, um, okay. which is another like minority indigenous mm-hmm. group in Ireland and Scotland. Mm-hmm. So, so that implies that sort of prisoner of war yeah. background to some extent, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Generally, what the like Wives of St. Bridget type biographies tell us about her early life is that she does a bunch of miracles relating to food production. Like she milks cows and they produce twice as much milk as they should. Was there like a lot of famine or scarcity in Ireland at this time? <laughs> Like, the normal amount. (laughs) So, the normal amount for medieval times, I understand, is a fair bit. Yeah, and it's certainly a recurring theme in her miracles, is her ability to, like, give away food to the poor and then magically still have enough to serve Mm -hmm. dinner at the convent. Oh, yeah. Um, And that kind of thing. Supposedly... This is another one of those apocryphal stories, which may or may not fit into her real life. Supposedly, her father tried to give her away in service to the king of a nearby region because she kept giving away his stuff in charity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, While she was, like, waiting in the carriage and he was chatting to the king, like, I've got my daughter to give you, she'll be great, she can scrub the floors or whatever, she gave away her father's sword to a passing beggar. Oh, my God. Um, The king saw this happen and was like, wow, what a holy woman, yeah, I'll take her on. <laughs> I have so much stuff that could be given away. Um, anyway, an untrue story that made me laugh. What's a beggar realistically going to do with a sword? Sell it, I guess. I guess sell it. I like the idea that this beggar
Gregor's like, well, it's time to turn to a life of crime. And just went like, stabbed <laughs> someone to death for some bread or something. The Vegas just like holding up convenience stores with a sword. Yeah. With my- yeah. Yeah. I guess the modern equivalent would be, you know, here, my child, have this gun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a jeweled gun belonging to the chieftain. Yeah. Have like the sheriff's fancy gun. Yeah. 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 You're saying that the king saw her and thought, oh, what a holy woman. So that implies that the king is also Christian? Is Ireland, like, Christian at this time? Christianity is very new in Ireland at this okay. time. There are some Christians in Ireland. There are some non-Christians in Ireland. Converting people to Christianity and spreading Christianity throughout Ireland is one of, like, the key actions of Irish saints in this era. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so you'll see in her later life, Bridget does a lot of travelling. She has a coachman who is ordained as a priest solely so that she'll always have a priest with her to baptise people. Oh, yeah. Practical. Practical <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, Ireland is, like, it's we're sort of in the middle of the period where Catholicism comes to Ireland. Okay. okay. Whether people are Christian or not in kind of anecdotes very much depends on what's going to be good in the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in this case they were like it will be better in the story if the king is like wow she was touched by god yeah yeah it's interesting to think about how it took like 400 years for christianity to make its way from italy to yeah. ireland yeah i don't know i yeah. don't really know a yeah. lot about how like obviously i know like christianity started and then it spread everywhere but like the exact steps in how long that took and yeah. why and things i don't know a lot of details yeah. about and that's interesting ireland is quite like remote from yeah. the rest of the catholic world at this time and you can tell they have like unique power structures and slightly different traditions mm-hmm. and a bunch of things like that which i'll tell you a little bit more about mm-hmm. later when bridget founds her abbey to uh let some people cross off their bingo card squares uh this is something that Anne rice depicts a little bit in her maker which is oh really <laughs> I, I think it might i i don't know specifically partly because Anne rice is a very good at cultural specificity i feel mm. she'll just be like this is the history place uh, it could have been in Scotland. It might have been in Scotland. I think but it's in it's Scotland. But it's the same sort of, like, gradual coming of Christianity yeah. sort of vibes. Yeah. And then there's a demon about it. <laughs> <laughs> are there any demons in this episode? There are not any demons in this episode. Okay. Yeah. Um, is cool. St. Patrick going to be here? St. Patrick is previous to okay. St. Bridget. There are some stories which suggest that they met each other or had some interactions but having said that as best as we can date the two of them he dies before she is born that was why i asked because i was like i'm sure that i've heard that they met but i also don't think that's true <laughs> yeah they, they did not meet um but everyone would love for them to have met yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and been besties and been besties or i don't know related or like something yeah 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 that's kind of all we really get about Bridget's youth. I will read you one of the miracles that she's said to have done in this time, just because I found it funny. Good. Um, so, from our man Cogitosis. <laughs> this further deed of hers should surely remove all doubt from those who have not yet heard it. All doubt being all doubt that she was, you know, chosen by God. It's going to oh. be a good miracle. It's a great miracle. I'm so ready to want to become Catholic. <laughs> I, I will try. I'm not intending for this podcast to convert you. I did not design it this way. <laughs> While her mind was immersed in contemplation of heavenly matters, raising her association from earthly to heavenly things, as was her constant want, she let a dog take not a small but a large piece of bacon. 
And when the bacon was sought, it was found, whole and intact, a month later, not just anywhere but in the dog's own spot, for the dog would not dare to eat what had been entrusted to the Blessed Virgin, but proved himself a patient and proper guardian of the bacon, contrary to his customary character. So is this really, like, Bridge's miracle, or is this Fido's miracle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... What did she do? She just gave some bacon to the dog. You can't even be a good boy anymore without letting... without people attributing it to St. Bridget. <laughs> I love that it specifically says, like, she was so busy thinking about God that she gave all the bacon to the dog. Like, to be clear, this is because she's so holy, not because she was just kind of distracted or the dog looked cute and sad. Yeah, no, presumably she was just, like, in the kitchen thinking about God while the dog hopped up on the table, grabbed the bacon and ran away. I love that they say a month later. I mean, I guess that's how bacon is. It's meant to be preserved. I understand that historical bacon kept much better than modern bacon because of refrigeration, so we don't bother anymore. That makes sense, but the initial image is extremely good as (laughs) it has. Yeah, yeah, fully. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that Bridget is up to. And if you want to know, like, the themes of her miracles in general, she turns a lot of milk and water into beer. All right. Um, Good Christian stuff. Yeah, good Christian stuff, you know. So would you say the barrier to being a saint is a lot higher these days than it used to be? Absolutely, because you need to either have been martyred or have two miracles Uh to do it. There's, like, a whole checklist. And I'm sure that a miracle like this isn't... Getting to... Yeah, getting two miracles is much harder now. Yeah. And um, thankfully, so is also being martyred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. You may true. not remember, but in the Hildegard episode, I can't remember how much we talked about it, but that was the time when they really brought in the bureaucracy uh, of okay, becoming yeah. a saint. And so Hildegard was never officially made a saint because she could never clear the, mm. yeah. clear the bureaucratic hoops. Yeah. Well, I remember something of this discussion going on in the background of my life with um, Mary McKillop. Yeah. yeah. I was literally just about yeah. to bring that up. Um, and they managed to get Mary McKillop eventually two miracles, I think, um, which were like, you know, some kid was sick and then his parents prayed to Mary McKillop and then he got better kind of thing. Sure. But yeah, that's definitely, it's much more difficult to become a saint now. Mm. And a little while ago as well, the Catholic Church like chucked a bunch of saints from the past oh, no. that they were like, these wouldn't clear our standards now. These are out. Well, I think it was specifically people where they were like, we have no concrete evidence that these people existed. Like I know one was St. Christopher who like yeah. carried Jesus across the river when he was a baby and that's obviously just you know an anecdote you can never prove that man was real once you start applying the burden of proof to this though i imagine that that's a real runaway freight train kind of yeah 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 and i think you know despite catholicism being a very like bureaucratic religion there's not actually a clear list of like who are the saints and who aren't the saints that's been consistent over Mm. time so they may have like scrapped these saints but these saints aren't gone yeah i was gonna say i cannot imagine that like a catholic person who really liked saint christopher was like oh yeah absolutely not i'm gonna throw out this medallion yeah whatever yeah I imagine they're like, oh, yeah, cool. Anyway, as I was saying, Christopher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And if you get in Catholic people's cars, they'll still have their little St. Christopher in there. Mm. Anyway, so St. Bridget comes of age. Her family starts discussing her marriage and she says she'd rather not to and swears to remain chaste and serve God. According to Cogitosis, her parents made no objections to this. Um, According to some other sources, her family were disappointed due to losing the financial boost of the dowry they would have received from her. And she also had a suitor who was very disappointed and made a comment about how her beautiful eyes would serve some man eventually. So the dowry her family would have received from her? Okay, please From her. So she would have married into another family who would have paid her family for her. 
Oh, okay. oh, okay. So, okay. So, like a bride price rather than a dowry. Yeah, I guess that's the correct word for <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. So the opposite of a dowry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The man. The man paid a dowry. I okay. Guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. No, you're you're right. That's probably not the correct word for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got you. Yeah. Now, so anyway. we don't know much, but you know that she has beautiful eyes. She has beautiful eyes, and her suitor commented that her beautiful eyes would be of benefit to some man eventually. At which point, she thrusts her finger into <gasps> her eye and pulls it out, and is like, "All right, have it then. No one's going to want me if I'm blind." <gasps> Oh. I totally forgot about that content warning. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm um. sorry, what? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Just one or both? Just one, okay. as far as I can tell. After which her brothers like rush around looking for water to wash her face, and she this is where the miracle comes in. She gives them her staff and is like, strike that ground there. Moses she, style. Yeah, they strike the ground. A stream bursts forth, they wash her face, and her eyes are magically healed, so that's fine. Oh, okay. okay. I was going to ask if she's, like, you know, has an eye patch for the rest <laughs> of her, if she's depicted having one eye. I don't know. No. Nobody mentions her, like, her sight is not an issue that comes up again. Oh. Okay. So but she was just healed and that was it. Whether she was just healed or whether this never happened at all. I am willing to bank that this never happened at all. I mean, I'm willing to bank that this never happened at all, but I'm also willing to believe that maybe she was had poor sight in one eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Sense. And people were like, what happened? Yeah, it was probably God-related. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Lestat also loses one eye and it's restored to him in religious circumstances. You really got Anne Rice on the brain today, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> I get the feeling that Anne Rice was a Catholic. She was a Catholic, yeah. So she's she's healed, she survives that experience, and she takes a vow of chastity and makes a plan with some other women to start a abbey. Was that, like, normal to do at the time? To start an abbey? Yeah, to, like, get your friends together and start an abbey. Yeah, okay. it doesn't seem to be, like, an unusual... Like, it's a holy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. She's I'm... very holy, but no <laughs> one's like that's outstanding. Like, women in the Celtic churches at this time have a lot more mm. autonomy and a lot more power than they oh, do okay. more broadly. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. what I was asking, because most of my frame of reference for this is learning about Hildegard, and when she founded a abbey, women really didn't do that. They waited for men to found abbeys for them, basically. Ah, uh, okay. Now, I'll tell you a little bit more... I'm literally just about to tell you about, like, women's role in the Irish church at this time. So, anyway, so whatever's going on in the rest of Europe, Ireland is quite isolated. Christianity is also very new there, which means that a lot of its kind of structures are heavily influenced by the established culture. Mm -hmm. To the point where, so they calculated Easter by a different method and had it on a different date, a situation which wasn't resolved for another like few centuries after this Mm -hmm. Um, it was a big controversy at the time they also had a kind of power structure which historians call celtic monasticism now and what that means is so generally in the catholic church there's like a hierarchy and it's got like monks and nuns at the bottom and then priests and then bishops and then archbishops and then cardinals and then the pope and then god yeah (laughs) and that's it it's like a big pyramid Um, it's a pyramid scheme (laughs) (laughs) yes you gotta make all your friends priests (laughs) <laughs> the original pyramid scheme. I mean, the original. Was in Egypt. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. Anyway, by comparison, the monastery in the Irish church holds a lot more power and has a lot more autonomy. Uh huh. They'll often like there'll be a monastery. They'll have land holdings in the surrounding area and inhabit this kind of almost feudal position. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and so they'll be making, so they'll have sort of economic and political power in mm-hmm. their area. And the abbess, who might be the head of that, like, monastery. Or convent, I guess, in this situation. Or convent, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're an abbess, it's not a monastery. Yeah, they also have, no, they have a lot of mixed gender oh. monasteries, um, which were also uncommon and on the mainland. women can be in charge of yeah. those. Crazy. Oh, that's yeah. That's pretty cool. Single, like, single sex 
religious establishments seem to have been relatively uncommon at this time. And yeah, so a man or a woman can be in charge. And then like the priest and the bishop still exist. They have a kind of symbolic, a sort of official function rather than making, having actual decision-making power. Okay. The abbey will make decisions and then they'll have to like wait for a traveling bishop to come and put his official stamp on it, governor general style. (laughs) (laughs) And you can see this when Bridget decides to become a nun and start her convent. She has to wait for the bishop to come around to like ordain her properly. She just makes a vow on her own and is like, I vow to serve God and be chaste. And then the bishop comes around to do it properly later on. So it's said that when Bishop Mel came around to ordain her, do you call it ordaining when a nun? I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. So Bishop Mel comes around to ordain her to be a nun. Um, and it's said that as he's reading the rites, he's so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit in that moment that he accidentally reads the rites for a bishop instead. Oh. <laughs> and she's like, you said it now. No, no take backs. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, you said it now. His assistant comments and it's like, you can't do that to a woman. And he's like, well, the Holy Spirit came upon me. So it's happened. So it's happened now. The source of this anecdote comes from the um, Behu Brigta, which is one of those lives of Bridget. Mm-hmm. which is written like two or three hundred years later. Yeah. Um, it may well be that this anecdote was designed to kind of explain why she had unusual power as a woman Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. in this time, which at the time wouldn't have been so unusual, but in hindsight they kind mm-hmm. of had to justify how this came about. So yeah. women had become less powerful yeah. in Irish Catholicism since Bridget's time. Yeah, so over time the actual Roman Catholic Church kind of gets a better grip on Ireland. <laughs> the Italians read it in the paper and they're like, they're doing what now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they start to have a little bit more control over what goes on in Ireland and bring it more in in line with what's happening in the rest of Europe. Yeah. So she starts an abbey at Kildara, which means Church of the Oak. Ah, oh, that's what Kildara is. I knew you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little note that's like, Alice will make a remark here. Yeah. <laughs> That is what Kildara is. Um, it means Church of the Oak. It's also the name of a Catholic school in Melbourne. Yeah. It's also the name of a Catholic school in Adelaide. <laughs> or, or more specifically, it's just Kildare, which I assume is Yeah, the same which thing. is like an anglicization. Yeah. So the town in Ireland is called Kildare now. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. My but- friend Chloe went there. Shout out to my friend Chloe. <laughs> Shout out to Chloe. <laughs> Shout out to Chloe. You have St. Bridget to thank for your education. Um, I think the primary school that you and I went to, Aaron, was a Bridgetine one, was it not? Yeah, it was. I have Bridget to thank for my education too. That's true. Bridget <laughs> um, had little to nothing to do with my education. <laughs> <laughs> went to a public school. Thank you, the South Australian government. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, South Australian government. She starts a convent at Kildara. Um... And the convent at Kildara becomes like becomes a kind of central point for Catholicism in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so she travels a lot, like outwards from there, like founding other churches, other like smaller churches, that kind of thing. There is again a theory that this was already the site of a temple to the goddess Bridget, and she did not found a convent so much as she was the priestess, a priestess to the goddess Bridget, who has been Christianized. I have no way of verifying that. Um, somebody did point out that with a simple archaeological dig, we could find out whether there was a temple there before the year 500. That's what I was about to say. You said you had no way of verifying, and I was going to be like, well, dig it up. <laughs> yeah, you literally could, but no one has done that yet, yeah. so we okay. can't say. That's um, a yeah. lot to expect of Irene. Yeah, get over there, Irene. I did not fly to Ireland and dig it up myself, but if you are an archaeologist in Ireland, like, please consider this. Okay, I'll volunteer on your dig. Yeah, yeah, we'll come down. I guess fun. I'll come too. 
Yeah. So I assume from what you've said then that we don't have any like clear written evidence of a temple of the goddess Bridget on that side. That's more speculative. No. There's no written evidence of it. There's no physical evidence that anyone's bothered to dig up yet. So it's um, just an idea. <laughs> it's just that people really feel like these like two religious figures should be the same thing. Yeah. So is it really just assuming that they weren't the same person? Mm. The name Bridget is just common enough that that was fine. Yeah, the name Bridget was common. She's a very significant, like, the goddess Bridget is a very significant figure in, like, pre-Christian religion in Ireland. So it's not strange that many people have this name. Okay. I do think that in a lot of ways, like, you move when you're moving from one religion to another as a culture, you're like, you know, we need a significant woman figure here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, obviously I can see how assuming Bridget was a real person after her death, they'd be like, okay, so a lot of the things that we did believe about the goddess, we can kind of transition. transfer onto. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that Bridget, the goddess's domain was, was blacksmithing. Cool. And I did read an article from a 1934 Australian newspaper about St. Bridget. <laughs> oh, <good>. <laughs> great <laughs> research. It was great research. Which, describing the abbey at Kildara, said, She was joined by her kinsman, a hermit and skilled craftsman in metals. He became bishop of the community. Under his inspiration and Bridget's, a decorative metal school was developed in Kildare. And they turned out bells, croziers, shrines, and other articles for churches near and far. So did that, like, happen? From what we know of people visiting the abbey at Kildara in its, like, original state, it's no longer there. It was destroyed Mm -hmm. in the 1300s. But Gerald of Wales visited there also in the 1300s. And what he commented on was, like, their illuminated manuscripts were fantastic. Loved that. It was beautiful. Okay, so some standard Abbey stuff, not anything specifically, like, blacksmith-related. Yeah, he commented on the Eternal Flame, and he was like, their manuscripts were fantastic. But then again, obviously, you know, there could have been a blacksmith there for hundreds of years, and then not for hundreds of years, and then Gerald turned up. Yeah, yeah. We should dig it up and look for some metal. Yeah, Yeah. we should. And that's also something that historians comment on when Gerald is like, this flame has been kept since the time of St. Bridget. That they're like, there is evidence that there was like a firehouse there, which the Eternal Flame was in. And other sources mentioned the Eternal Flame. But thus far, we have no way of knowing whether this went back to the four and five hundreds. So we know there'd been a flame there for a while, but we don't know when the flame started. Yeah, we're like, there's been a flame there, they think, at least from about the 10th century. Okay. Which is definitely long enough for Gerald to come and be like, wow, this has been here for a hundred years. Yeah. That's long. So as I said, women in the Irish Catholic Church were able to hold a lot of power at this time. Cogitosis about the abbess at Kildara, even after Bridget's death, describes her like co-ruling with the archbishop, like co-ruling Christian Ireland, basically, and oh. says, the chief of all bishops and the most blessed chief of the virgins with happy association between them ruled Ireland. Okay. And Charles Edwards is a modern scholar and he described the abbess at Kildara as the most important woman in Ireland. Okay. She's doing well for herself. She's doing well for herself. She's a very significant woman. So when you say that, like, Charles Edwards said she was the most significant woman in Ireland or that other thing about how Mm -hmm. the two of them ruled Ireland together, are they talking about the time of Bridget or later on or...? They're talking about Bridget and her successes. Okay. So they're talking about the abbess of Kildara as kind of a political role. Do we know how much of that was established in Bridget's life versus later on? Like, did she set up this powerful position, like, quite quickly during her lifetime or is this something that grew post-Bridget? 
she established it to some degree in that she travels a lot throughout her Mm. life. She's almost like setting up the Christian church in Ireland to a great extent. While we're talking about women and the Irish Christian church, I wanted to share with you another miracle that Bridget is said to have done. The bacon was a good one, so this has a high standard to live up to. This one is a very interesting one. Okay. So... With her powerful and inexpressible strength of faith, she confidently blessed a certain woman who had made a vow of virginity but was led astray in human frailty and fell prey to youthful lust and had then become pregnant with her uterus swelling. At once, what had been conceived in her womb disappeared. Oh, okay. So her miracle's an abortion. Yes. Interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. It's not the only abortion miracle which occurs in... Like the early Irish saints. Okay. The other two are by men. Bridget is the only woman to have done an abortion miracle. Mm-hmm. So I don't expect you to know the full history of abortion in the Catholic Church, but like, was abortion okay at that time in the Catholic Church? So I did actually look into this, and we can glean some of what's acceptable in terms of like sexual life and that kind of thing from penitentiaries, which are those documents which are printed and they're like advice to priests on how various sins should be punished. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which make them super interesting documents because they're literally just lists of like, okay, if a man does this with another man, he should do penance on bread Mm. and water for this long. So it's really like ranking like a really clear idea of what the sins are and how bad they consider each sin to be in comparison to the others. Yeah, and in one of the Irish penitentiaries, in around like the year 1000, the thing that it says about abortion is essentially that if a woman in Induces a miscarriage after the seed has been established in her womb. There's like a minor penance until it says that the soul has entered the body of the child. But does it say when the soul enters the it body? It doesn't tell you exactly when that is. At various times in various Christian teachings, it's been when you can hear a heartbeat. It's been when you can feel the child move. It's been when you feel like when the child takes its first breath. It's been a mm. bunch of different times, depending okay. on Christian teachings. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what they meant there, but it's obviously clear that there was a period at which they thought it was a very minor sin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> after okay. which it became a more significant sin. Okay. At a yeah. certain point of development. So what do modern Catholics have to say about abortion miracles? Or do they not say anything <laughs> yeah, no. about them typically? <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is an interesting situation. St. Bridget very much got kind of taken up as a, a like sort of a symbolic figure for the abortion debate in Ireland. I don't know if you two remember mm-hmm. they had a referendum yeah. on yeah. abortion a couple of years ago. And St. Bridget very much becomes like a key figure in that debate. And there's like, I read about a couple of women who had like tattoos of the St. Bridget's cross. And there were like women at protests and things like that dressed as St. Bridget with their pro abortion signs. That's very cool and interesting. And then, conversely to that, I found a lot of like nonsense articles on Catholic magazines that were like the left are trying to reinvent Bridget as a lesbian abortionist. (laughs) (laughs) True, I guess so. Yes. And I was like, I guess we are. That's why we're here today. I mean, she just is an abortionist, though. Yeah. Like, so I can't yeah. wait to hear if she also just yeah. is a lesbian. The development of anti-abortion teaching, like the way that it is in Christianity today, is actually very recent. Uh-huh. Okay. How recent are we talking? I'm talking second half of the 20th century. Oh, okay. Wow. Like, it's kind of under debate before that in that way where they're like, this is obviously wrong at some point, but we're not sure exactly when in the child's development. Yeah. And there's sort of debate about when the soul enters the body and sure. under what circumstances it's acceptable. Yeah. But anti-abortion rhetoric, the way that it is today. Yeah is Mm -hmm. quite recent. And very much in terms of sex and sin in medieval Ireland at this time, 
a lot of the kind of regulation around sex is like about having inappropriate sex with people in your community kind of don't like you don't have sex with someone who's married to someone else don't have sex with your cousin don't have sex with but having sex with a passing stranger is not such a sin so it's about maintaining community cohesion rather than any kind of personal chastity yeah and that's kind of a pre-christian culture around sex in ireland Uh which gradually shifted as the catholic church got its fingers in um (laughs) it's little tendrils on everything (laughs) yeah but in like early christian ireland the like sex as a sin thing hasn't really dug in yet okay i guess we would still say probably don't have sex with someone who has a partner don't have sex with your cousin (laughs) yeah exactly seems pretty solid but yeah like a passing stranger is all good i do like this idea of like a tiny town and like you know (laughs) a guy passes through and everyone's like oh yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah now that I've told you about that, we are going to talk about the lesbians. I was cool. thinking we were kind of starting to talk about sex in Ireland. I was like, is this where we transition to the gay part? Yeah. yeah, it is. Good. So, the suggestion that Bridget is a lesbian in modern scholarship comes from a man named Peter Cherisi, who was writing in the early 90s. He bases this on a few anecdotes we have about Bridget and her, like, kind of second in command nun. <laughs> That's not a real, <laughs> a real turn of phrase. Basically, she has another slightly younger companion nun who she's very close to and they have like a mentor-mentee relationship that's very intimate which is written about in the early lives of St. Bridget what's this woman's name? her name's Daludach okay with apologies to Irish speakers because I'm not one but you know we do our best (laughs) (laughs) so the two women are very close during the day they work together and study together and during the night they share a bed good 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 it's unclear at this time whether that's normal sexual or not they may have shared a bed for warmth they may have shared a bed for companionship platonic or sexual i don't really know so do we know or have evidence about other like women sharing beds at this time like was that a normal thing that people were doing for like warmth and platonic reasons at this time yeah i can't say anything for women specifically but we definitely have men sharing beds platonically okay for warmth and that kind of thing or like families sharing beds Mm -hmm. i don't know whether it would have been normal in this abbey but overall culturally there's lots of reasons to share a bed yeah so there's two versions of the story I'm about to tell you. In the first, Daluda, being young, was overcome with lust for a hot man that happened to be passing through town. <laughs> and she agrees to sneak out of the convent in the middle of the night to break her vow of chastity and have sex with him. Okay. And then she's lying in bed at night and Bridget's beside her asleep and she's having a lot of inner conflict about whether she values her vow of chastity and her like service to God or whether she values her opportunity to have sex with this man more. And finally, looking for a way to overcome her temptation, she puts her feet into the bed of hot coals that are in the <sighs> fireplace and the pain from burning her feet overcomes her unfulfilled lust and yeah, she would. goes back to bed. And just then, casually goes back to bed. Yeah, that's literally how it is. Right. It's like she goes back, she cuddles up to Bridget and goes to sleep. Anyway, in the morning, Bridget wakes up and tells Daluda that she was actually awake watching her have inner conflict this whole time. She just didn't want to, like, interrupt her. And she's so, like, she's proud of her for the decision that she made and she heals her feet. Thank you. Okay, I was waiting to be like, and does she heal the feet? <laughs> she does. She heals the feet. And that's, that, that's the end of that story. Okay, no offense, but that didn't sound that gay. Okay, so... Peter Cherizzi shares a slightly different version of this story, which I wasn't able to source directly, (laughs) but seems to be in, like, general circulation. In this different version of the story, Bridget is awake during Daludach's 
in a conflict. And Bridget instructs her to put her feet in the hot coals as a punishment for being tempted. But she hasn't even broken the vow yet. At least that I have sex with the guy first. (laughs) (laughs) It's just been punished for impure thoughts. Bridget is big brother. Big Bridget. (laughs) Big Bridget. (laughs) Yeah. So Peter Cherisi and scholars following him, including Peter Beresford Ellis, a different Peter, (laughs) interpret this punishment as an expression of jealousy on Bridget's part. I see that that is an interpretation, but I don't think the story points towards that interpretation any more than it just points to a religious interpretation. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought. Alice says we're left with little doubt that Bridget had a lesbian relationship. No, Um, we're not. But that doesn't hold up. (laughs) We're not. Like, especially because there's a version of the story where she burnt her feet of her own accord. That clearly positions the burning of the feet as a, like either punishment for her lust or a like way of yeah like a way of challenging her attachment to her physical body yeah yeah like Um. that's clearly how that's positioned and having Bridget step in and do that doesn't change that positioning no Mm. that's sort of how I felt that like it positions Bridget in that version of the story as I guess more of a guiding figure to Daludak yeah and more of an authority figure but But I don't think it positions her as a lover yeah, no, both Peters seemed convinced that because we could see Bridget in the past, like, so strongly rejecting the advances of men, and then being upset when her close companion did this, they interpreted it as jealousy. That's generally what people refer to when they talk about Bridget being a lesbian. I Aww. think there's some slightly more interesting things that she says, which kind of complicate her relationships in a way that's not so clear-cut like Bridget was a lesbian. Okay. Yeah, so something I was going to say just before you said that was like, I feel like the Peters are taking quite a simplistic approach to sexuality yeah. in saying that, you know, oh, okay, so she, Bridget, obviously had a really strong response to not wanting to be with a man, like the whole eye situation, yeah. and also a really strong response to not wanting Dylodach to be with a man, burning her feet. Therefore, she's a lesbian, which I feel like fails to explore the possibility of religious chastity or perhaps asexuality. Like, it fails to explore other possible ways of being your sexuality that aren't attracted to men and attracted to women. Yeah, no, I agree with this. So the thing I'm going to bring up now is a conversation that Bridget is recorded having with a young cleric who comes to visit her community. Again, this happens in Berhubrigta, which is, you know, a hagiography. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we've accepted that nothing is real in this story. We just have yeah. to analyse what it means. Yeah, I think that you have to kind of take this story more in terms of analysing how people perceive this figure yeah. than analysing was Bridget a lesbian. We're not trying to find the facts of Bridget's life. Yeah. And so the story goes like this. A young cleric of the community of ferns, I don't know where ferns is. The community of ferns sounds very idyllic. I'm picturing like a little rainforesty, <laughs> like does. one of those nice. children's movies where there's fairies living in a um, rainforest. Specifically fern girl. You were specifically thinking of fern girl. Yeah, I just couldn't remember what it was called. <laughs> Except minus the bit where like, you know, they come and chop down the forest. And, yeah. Like, well, yeah. that's probably not going to be a problem in Ireland for a while after when we're talking. So. <laughs> So, a young cleric of the community of Ferns used to come to her with wishes. He was with her in the refectory to partake of food. Well, young cleric there, says Bridget, hast thou a soul friend? Like a bestie. Yeah, the word <laughs> the word is Gaelic. Like it's anamkara, which is like literally soul friend. And the cleric says, I have. 
Let us sing his requiem, for he has died. Oh, his soul friend. And Bridget says, Thou without any head on thee, for thy soul friend has died, and anyone without a soul friend is a body without a head. So I bring this up to say, like you said, I feel like the Peters and other scholars <laughs> with similar views are kind of taking a reductive view on mm. this, that they're like, this needs to be this exclusive lesbian relationship, which we can identify through Bridget's jealousy to be significant to us, where many people interpret Bridget's insistence on the importance of a soul friend as an expression of her value of Daludach as a friend, as like an intimate friend that she has. Yeah, I mean, even if she's not really talking about Daludach there, like it's quite clear that she's recognizing like the very high value of an intimate friend that's not a heterosexual romantic relationship. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that that's something that's just worth yeah. pointing out. When I read that story and we're all like, that doesn't seem gay. I don't want to be like, okay, we'll throw that all out. <laughs> Time um, to go home now. I do think that that like one-on-one intimacy that she is having with a woman is significant in terms yeah. of the relationships that she's chosen to have in her life. Mm, and even if she's not talking about Dalit like that, she's acknowledging that significance. Yeah, the fact that she's so strongly rejected marriage specifically but she does express the value of this intimate close friendship with another person yeah it's a framework in which one could be queer yeah so do you know anything more about kind of the cultural context at the time or as close as we can get to the time obviously we're lacking some sources of like this idea of a soul friend i can't really say anything exactly at the time regarding the sources but it's something that comes up in irish mythology a lot in terms Mm -hmm. of like warriors they'll often and have like a Achilles Patroclus situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's generally a strong emphasis in like pre-Christian Irish culture on like same gender close relationships of that kind. Mm, for both men and women, just because the yeah. example you gave was quite masculine. Yeah. When I was reading about Anamkara, people said it existed for women, but I don't have any concrete examples. So while we're here, I do want to talk a little bit about like same gender attracted women in medieval Irish literature of the era that are not Bridget, but I think can sort of illustrate something to us about the existence of this and where it stood in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this story which focuses on King Neil Frosach. He's the King of Alec, which is an area in northwestern Ireland. I understand that Neil is like a very old name that people in Ireland have had <laughs> for a long time and, you know, he can be very respectable like King Neil. But to me, Neil is just like, it's there with like Bruce, Keith <laughs> and Dave. It's just like such yeah, a like, generic name. I love how you mentioned King Greg. Yeah, it's like, like some guy, you know. Generic names that sound out of place and you include David. For King. Just given, just <laughs> given, you know. Yeah, but if you said King Dave, that would sound silly. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but that's a you problem. You chose to call him Dave. Nobody well, has you... a child and is like, yeah, this is Dave, not David. <laughs> Let's just go back to my examples of Bruce and Keith, shall we? Okay, I don't actually I'm know. pretty sure that Keith is also like an ancient Scottish name. Bruce is not a reason. Bruce may also be an ancient Scottish name. I mean, like, Robert the Bruce exists. Yeah, why is he the Bruce, though? What's a Bruce? I've known this in my lifetime. Anyway, so, Neil Frosach is there, he's a king, and a woman comes to him for his wise kingly judgment, as your subjects do. So Neil is king in about the 700s. This is a story about him, which we have written evidence of from much later. Okay, so this is not a historical fact. Yeah, but I think it gives you, again, a sense of, like, people's perceptions of, like, same-gender relationships. Mm-hmm. So a woman comes to him for his wise kingly judgment, and he's like, what's up? And she's like, as you see, I'm pregnant, even though I haven't had sex with a man for many years. How do I find the father? I need child support. Fair question. And Neil is like, okay, reasonable question. How about women? Have you had a tumble with any women lately? Oh. <laughs> 
just straight into it. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I do often. And so Neil is like, look, it's the woman that you have sex with married. She's probably recently had sex with a man. And in your, (laughs) in your sex with her, sperm has been transferred to you, which is a common theme in Irish stories, like unusual conceptions. People will conceive through oral sex or, you know, conceive through general sperm getting into them in unusual ways. We both sat in a hot tub. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And so he's like, look, the father of this child is probably your girlfriend's husband. Okay. I would love this sitcom. (laughs) Set in this time period. The wild part of the story starts now. What? That was not the wild part of the story? No, there is more. So... Neil says that, and then bam, a priest descends from the sky. Oh, <laughs> he doesn't just walk in. Go and he's on. like, thank you so much, Neil. Neil's like, what? And the priest is like, I've been stuck up there for years. I accidentally made a deal with a demon while trying to raise money to renovate my church. And I have been trapped floating around the sky ever since. With your holy pronouncement, I'm now free. What? What does the husband being the father have to do with the priest being stuck in the sky? <laughs> Basically, what happens is that the priest hears this, like, holy truth. He's like, that's such a piece of wisdom. It's so wise and so true. It's not, though. (laughs) I am freed from my curse and I am here on the ground. Um, So the piece of wisdom that's so wise and so true is just like being smart enough, assuming this is factually correct, being smart enough to realise that you can get pregnant through lesbian sex if the woman you're having sex with has recently had sex with a man. Yeah, basically. To be clear, listeners, you cannot. You cannot, no. (laughs) Like, I bring this up basically to show you that... Same-sex relationships with women are something that exists and are understood Mm. in this society and are not considered to be sinful. Yeah, and it's put on quite a level with a relationship with a man in the way it's framed of like, oh, I haven't slept with any men. Well, have you slept with any women? Like, they're kind of made comparable in that story. So what's the upshot of this? Like... Who pays child support? Does she have the baby? Like <laughs> That's the end of the story, so I do not know. I'm assuming that she went to the husband and was like, I'm pregnant. It's I've yours. Been... And he was like, excuse me. Does he know she's in sleep with her wife? I don't know. I don't know. This is all the information in the story. <laughs> I have paraphrased it somewhat because it was funnier, but that's literally how the story goes. Okay, I need more, more information. Um, we can also get a general sense of perceptions of women's relationships with women through Christine McCann's study of penitential handbooks, which I mentioned earlier. So she examined a range of penitential handbooks, including eight from Ireland between the years 600 and 1000. Mm -hmm. And one thing she noted was that compared with 40% of Anglo-Saxon penitential handbooks and an even greater percentage of French handbooks, only two out of the eight Irish penitentiaries referred to homosexuality. And there's only one mention of sex between women. It's generally seen as a far smaller sin. Than sex between two men. Than sex between two men. So she doesn't tell me specifically what the sex between women mention was in the Irish penitentiary, but she gives me a general statement about how it's seen in the church, mostly in Anglo-Saxon penitentiaries where it comes up the most. So it's seen as a lesser sin than sex between men. It carries the same punishment as practicing solitary vice. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, with the exception of if the two women fornicate per machina using a device. Ah, oh, so, okay. Uh-huh. If you get a dildo and you penetrate another woman, that is a greater sin because it's okay. subverting the natural order of things. Sure. Oh. As opposed to if two women have sex, kind of it's equivalent to masturbation. It's- yeah, if two women just have sex, they're just having sex. But if they like simulate a phallus with some separate device that's subverting the natural order of things and carries a penance of seven years rather than three. Seven years of what? It always just says penance of seven years and then at the backs of the books there are like lists of what the penance may involve and sometimes it's like 
having bread and water only on holy days. Ah, okay. Or abstaining from wine or things like that. Oh. Okay, so it's seven years of doing something. It's that's seven some years kind of, of fast, kind of yeah. Thing. But it always just in the actual text just says however long of penance, and it might be like twenty days or seven years or okay. the rest of your life. Seven years is quite a long time. Seven years is quite a long time, but some of the penances are quite mild. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say up to the discretion of your priest. Yes. Yeah. So Bridget is a nun mm-hmm. who has obviously taken a vow of chastity. Mm-hmm. Do you have any information? about how sex between women is viewed in the context of a vow of chastity. Like, was that considered to be breaking that vow? I don't have any information about that. I can confirm that sex between women occurs between nuns throughout medieval Europe. That's all I can tell you. Okay. I've read some sexy poetry by nuns, but they were from Germany. Yeah, see, I only have the context of Germany as well and Hildegard and, like, conversation in that context. So, like, you know... 12th century Germany about how like any strong relationship sexual or non-sexual whatever is kind of Mm. not appropriate for a nun because your focus should really be on your relationship with God so I was wondering if we had any comparable attitudes in Ireland no I can't really say I guess I mean I'm speculating here but obviously there is a distinction being made between sex between women and penetrative sex between women so it could be that you know some sex acts may have been acceptable within your vow of chastity, and some may have not. But I'm just speculating. Yeah, and I mean, it's something. I guess it's a recurring thing that we see in discussions of sexuality historically that penetration does kind of play a key role in how people interpret the significance of an act. Mm, yeah. So that's all of the facts I know about like women attracted women in medieval okay. Ireland in 2023. Which has not happened yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was kind of in my mind being like, oh yeah, so just like a few years ago. <laughs> oh, God, in 2023, which has not occurred yet, Ireland has declared that the 1st of February will be a public holiday in honour of St. Bridget's feast day. Nice. Oh, so this is like a new thing moving This is forward. a brand new thing. It's first going to happen next year. That's exciting. Which is exciting, but very unusual in that Ireland in general has been moving in a more secular direction for years. Yeah. What's the public holiday situation in Ireland now? Like, do they have, like, St. Pat's Day off, for example? They have St. Pat's Day, they've got Christmas Day, they've got Easter Monday, and they've got St. Stephen's Day, which is the day after Christmas Day. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a very interesting choice for them to introduce a new Catholic holiday when generally, politically, Ireland has been going in the direction of, like, separating itself from the... Catholic Protestant split yeah. politically yeah. for obvious reasons. There's a general perception that I saw when I was reading news articles about this decision that there's been a revival of interest in St. Bridget in the past 20 years or so. Okay. There's some veracity to this. The work of scholars like Peter Teresi emphasized her potential to be a sort of modern figure, a figure that's palatable to modern Irish Catholic people. A lesbian abortionist, if you will. Yeah, a lesbian <laughs> abortionist, if we will. And her ability to demonstrate the power of women in early Mm. Ireland, which has made her a relatable figure for progressive Irish people who has sort of found the traditional Irish Catholicism of the last couple of centuries to be quite repressive. Having said that, when I was looking into this, when I searched for, like, St. Bridget revival, I was finding newspaper articles for the last hundred plus years being like, revival of interest in St. Bridget. So there's just been continual interest in St. Bridget that people are occasionally discovering and being like, oh, hey, people are into St. Bridget. Yeah. I mean, she's always been a very significant Catholic figure. I think that it's less of a revival in interest in this case and more of a kind of reinterpretation of the figure of St. Bridget, which allows Mm. a different group of people to connect to her. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say like a revival among progressive women. 
yeah. rather than just a revival overall. I want to finish by I'm just going to read a brief quotation from Kiva Darby, who is an Irish lesbian who wrote very recently about her feelings on St. Bridget and her desire to root her identity as a lesbian in Irishness and why this makes her connection to St. Bridget very important to her. She started out by writing about how difficult it was for her growing up in Ireland in the 90s as a young queer woman with a single mother because there was really no place for her in an Irish Catholic, sort of traditional Mm. Irish Catholic culture which focused very much on the nuclear family. And she says that she found some sense of belonging when she discovered the American queer movement, but she didn't want her identity to be entirely rooted offshore. And she says then that discovering Bridget's potential sapphism was pivotal for her. She's speaking about the burning coals story that I told you earlier. And she says, while this may only be rumored sapphism with many scholars reading this rather as evidence of her devotion to God, I would much rather see her as a pioneering Irish queer, her, my mother, Mary and me, her petulant devilish daughter. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to wrap up there with that because I feel like I've told you a lot of things where I'm like, this may not be significant and it may not be true, but people kind of think this. And so I just wanted to emphasize why it is important in this case, what people think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think we come out of this going, factually, St. Bridget was born in 452 and she did have sex with Stella Dark. Like, that's not the conclusion we're going to draw. And we can't possibly know or not know if that ever occurred. But I think it is still significant to talk about, like, the importance that can hold to Irish people and Irish lesbians in particular as a part of their history, even a reinterpreted part of their history. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. If you like this podcast and you want to hear some more, you can find us pretty much anywhere where you find podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Podbean. We're probably on whatever your podcatcher is. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. If you want to email us directly, you can do so at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you really like this and you want to provide us with financial support, you can join our Patreon or you can get onto our Redbubble and buy Queer as Fact merch. Then you will also get to wear the Queer as Fact logo on your body. All of this information, along with our sources, are available on our website, queerasfact.com. We'll be back on October the 1st when Alice will be telling us about the Australian queer micronation, the gay and lesbian kingdom of the Coral Sea. Thank you. See you then. <laughs>